Hey everybody, this is Ben, and before we start the show today, I just want to give advanced warning. This is a pretty tough episode about Star Trek The Next Generation that we're talking about in this episode. Uh, There is a sexual assault that is depicted more or less graphically on screen uh, in the episode we discuss, so uh, I just want anybody who has particular sensitivities around that to know that going in. And with that, uh, I guess we'll get on with the show and see how we do with probably the hardest uh, episode we've ever had to try to make jokes about. Here's to the finest crew in Starfleet. Engage. Welcome to The Greatest Generation, a Star Trek podcast by a couple of guys who are a little bit embarrassed to have a Star Trek podcast. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. Hey, Adam. How you doing? I'm all right, Ben. How are you? I'm good. I'm I'm kind of riding high. We just had an important business meeting, you and I. Oh, yeah. Just discussing big plans for 2017. I, uh, I got to break the spine of my Robert's Rules of Order book that I keep <laughs> handy for meetings like that. Mm-hmm. You did an excellent job of reading the last meeting's minutes, Ben. It's, it's really hard to get a second when you m- move to adjourn a topic when there's only two people. And the other right. person disagrees with you on just about everything. Right. I have to be your proxy for all of those. Yeah, it's And tough. that makes it awkward. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm excited because we're we've got a tour and greatest Gen Con, and we're going to try and do both of them this year. Yeah, our viewers have have not been shy about reaching out and saying, uh, "Look, guys, enough with the jokes <laughs> about greatest Gen Con 2017. We actually want it, and that is not a joke. And so now, now we've got to do it, don't we?" Yeah, I think uh I think we would rightly be excommunicated from our own podcast if we didn't deliver on Greatest Gen Con twenty seventeen at this point. They asked for it, we're delivering. Yeah, we like literally don't even know when or where yet. <laughs> it's a lot to a lot so, yeah, to Yeah, so very productive meeting. A lot to hammer down. But we, we you know I think we I think we made the strongest yet affirmative commitment to put the process in motion. Yeah, another thing we discussed was the uh, the specter of the cruise, which is uh, is another thing that I feel like we're confident in wanting to attempt to do, but <laughs> we have uh, we have just as many details on that as we do on anything else. So, I yeah. guess. The bottom line is we have achieved some sort of forward momentum on all of these things. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. uh, so wait to give up hope until uh, we've actually failed at any of those prospects. Exactly. <laughs> well, Adam, uh, we're we're really into the brief Marin Open lately. So, uh, what do you say we get right into our episode that we came here to talk about today? Yeah, it's the after-school special of Next Gen episodes, isn't it, Ben? It's season five, episode twelve. Violations. First duty of every staff officer is to the truth, scientific truth, or the story of 
Now, this is an Uber mission, but we're not supposed to like Uber anymore, so... Boy, I don't even know what to say. Taxi cab mission? They they deleted the app from their phones. Yeah. Yeah, this is a... Uh, this is I like a U- the shorthand, though. The Uber is, is nice and tight. Yeah. It's kind of become the Xerox of of way to get from one place to another, hasn't it? The the Kleenex of ride sharing. <laughs> the band-aid of exploiting young people and people who are on the verge of falling out of the middle class. The Tupperware of the working poor. <laughs> I can't think of another product that has... Point Adam. Adam wins the volley. You get nothing. You lose. Day, sir. Uh, you get me on a clay court, Ben. I'm sliding around all over the place. Yeah, yeah. I'm used to, I'm used to playing on grass because I'm so fancy, Adam. Right. The entrepreneur is conveying some Ulians. You remember Uli? To... Uh, planet, and these are a type of telepathic historian. Um, we've got Tarman, the uh, the elder Ulian. Uh, he's got he's got a uh, you know a kind of a heavy set older man with white hair, and his uh, his wife who rocks some serious like Princess Leia level hair braidage. And their son, Jev. And uh, this is a type of alien with a really nasty-looking case of temple loaf. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the gro- grosser loafs, I, I want to say. You really, you really can't say enough about the wife's hair, which is sort of like a powdered wig, but if the wig was a noose... <laughs> Sort of a powdered noose, I guess. They got the same hair and makeup person that did uh, Ensign Rose hair when she had the helicopter look. It looks real tight. Like, uncomfortably tight. Yeah. She's a pretty chill lady, though. These Ulians walk around wearing these long robes that look like giant versions of, like, snowflake cutouts that kindergarten kids make for the holidays. I feel like this is something that would be on Project Runway, and they would really hate it. Yeah. They'd be like, you you just used a standard trench coat pattern and then cut random triangles out of it. There's no creativity in that. I think part of it might be that it just very clearly looks like felt. Just yeah. plain old white felt. <laughs> well, maybe that wasn't evident in the standard definition edition. Oh, it is so evident now, though. Yeah, you see, you see all the little fibers. The illusion is ruined by seeing all the little fibers. So we get to know these Yulians uh, during a kind of parlor trick that they play on Fair Keiko in a redress ten forward, or maybe it might actually be ten forward. It's bitter. There's something else inside the cup. Yes, uh... A wooden handle. A spoon. No, it's more delicate than that. She's sitting at a table with the eldest Yulian, and she's got her eyes closed, and he's, he's like, prompting her. He's, like, he's asking her about this, this 
cup of liquid. Yeah. That she can't get out of her head, that she's had it on her mind for a long time, and she just doesn't know what it's about. And so this is this is teaching the viewer about the power of the Yulians, using this example. Yeah, and it kind of reminded me of like... Um of like a performance hypnotist have you ever been to one of those adam yeah yeah they have like a a guy who's like one level below a stage magician it's real office party uh vibes you know right yeah like we we brought in brian sunderland (laughs) to do hypnosis on the whole gang so stick around you may have seen him at the red lion hotel (laughs) south of the airport yeah (laughs) Not in, not in one of the ballrooms in the lobby. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So so she's like she's like going into deep memory and remembering a kind of a kind of a quotidian memory, right? It's just yeah. about being a little girl and helping her grandmother with a paintbrush, like like getting some getting some water so that her grandmother could clean her uh her watercolor paintbrush and uh it's like all right <laughs> i don't know i don't know what was so important about about digging that up like it's not like um you know a a trauma that keiko has has buried deep i feel like all the trauma in keiko's life is in the present <laughs> yeah she's got real curly haired trauma yeah She's in a loveless marriage. This is like one of the few scenes that we've seen with Keiko where she wasn't giving birth or having a fight with Chief O'Brien. Yeah. Yeah, she's safe, finally. (laughs) (laughs) And this feels, I mean, once the parlor trick is over, you know, it's, it's polite applause all around. Keiko has gotten to the center of her sense memory and, (laughs) and, and sort of has solved that mystery. But yeah. It seems like the risks outweigh the rewards of doing this in public, right? So Keiko's only grasp of this memory is a cup of liquid. That is remarkable. You remembered such vivid details. But God, like it could be anything. It could be grandma's dentures. Right. For years, I've seen that old cup in my memory, but I could never remember what it was or why it was important. And, and they just don't know until they get to it in a very public fashion. It seems like... A very socially risky thing to do in the same way that public hypnosis is socially risky. Well, I think that, you know, yeah, like in in a public hypnosis thing, there's always they always kind of they always kind of joke around with the crowd and play with the taboo of like getting a lady to take her top off or something like they sort of imply that that's on the table is something that could be done when she's in this mind state, but then they don't actually do it. Right. But then they might, like, you know, get them to in- in- engage in some lighter form of ribaldry. I feel like Keiko is just squeaky clean, you know? Like, she looks into her past and she's like, there's nothing. There's nothing bad in the past, you know? Whereas, you know, if if I had had uh, engaged in this, I, I have a rich history of embarrassing things in my past. Sure. Sure. Some. <laughs> Some would say those are even happening right now. <laughs> and they sort of, un- they underscore that as they sort of uh, throw it around the room after the, after Keiko is done. Perhaps someone else would care to try? They sort of go around the horn with each yeah. other and Riker's like, well, there's no way I would do that. And Jordy agrees. And so does Worf. Like, no one seems very hip to the idea. 
Right. The idea of going next, I should say. Yeah, yeah. And Tarman turns to the doctor. You, madam. He kind of like baits her by kind of saying what she's thinking about. You're thinking about that first childhood kiss. And her, his, his, uh, his compatriots kind of scold him. You no, know you're not supposed to probe someone's memory unless they've given you permission. And he says a classic rape culture line, which is... You are right. But sometimes, with a beautiful woman, I cannot help myself. Oh. <laughs> it, is, it is Trump on the bus kind of talk, but it's yeah. kind of laughed off by everybody, which is kind of strange, right? Because this is like supposed to be a future in which the kind of, you know, the sexes have achieved equality. It should be terrifying. Right. Like they should be like, well, like you guys are going to have to remain confined to your quarters for the remainder of the trip, because that's really not the kind of talk we tolerate around here. And also, like she would have had no idea that it was happening if he didn't say it. Like he could just be playing around in her mind for the entire session and she wouldn't know. But it was his comment that made it clear that that he was reading her. Yeah, it is. It's like him forcing himself on her in the presence of a bunch of people and everybody acts like it is like a pretty harmless and normal okay thing they have to do it that way right like they have to set the tone that it begins innocent because if it's because if it begins sinister then the quote-unquote payoff isn't the same right yeah well and i think that we have to assume innocence it's a weird head faint in terms of storytelling, too, because it's it's a very creepy thing that Tarman does and something that I don't think would... Like, I think it's a bit of a miss in terms of something that would be an okay way to behave in the time that we're talking about. I mean, it's not even an okay way to behave now. But... Um, <laughs> But then they like end this scene with like a like a total like villain push in on hmm. Jev, you know, like they they like let the music go all go all dissonant and push in on on Jev, the handsome younger son, and it's like well, I wonder who the villain's going to be. Yeah. Yeah, it seems fairly rare that we know that we know exactly what's going to happen before the theme song drops. Like, it's not so much foreshadowing as it is very explicit foreColoring, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's like it's like John Madden reaches into the frame <laughs> and draws a circle around Jeff yeah. and goes, boom! reset the the observation lounge for a kind of a state dinner type situation see i don't know why starfleet always has these big curved tables rolled out for when they're going to have like a big uh a big fancy dinner function yeah you know it's like when general chang and the enterprise crew had their big meeting i offer a toast the undiscovered country what's nice about that curved table is that uh it gives you an easy way to shoot it, like sightline wise. Yeah, uh, it's well, great for the camera. 
I guess so. I maybe it must be just that because the ship is a circle, they have lots of arc-shaped rooms, and it would be awkward to have a straight table in there. Everything's got to be D-shaped, right? They, they want a nice easy D. It's true. We don't get a lot of uh, like we've seen dinner scenes on this show before that are very explicit about what's being consumed. We don't really mm-hmm. get a whole lot of that here. Instead, we concentrate on the conversation which has to do with uh, Tarman giving us more background on their abilities and how much training it takes to be able to do what it is that they do. Right. So they're not like born into this ability. It's something that their species can do only with years and years of training. And these are like top of their tier professionals who have made made a life of doing historical research by going into people's living memories uh, with their permission. And so they're like traveling across the sector, you know, going planet to planet, like working on some kind of history project. And, and like, there's two kind of amazing things about this scene. One is that they, you know, they keep kind of pushing their agenda of doing this process on members of the crew and the other thing is that uh, the members of the crew are able to eat despite the fact that they're looking at the fucking loaf on <laughs> these aliens, Adam. Yeah. You know how meatloaf looks great from, like, the top? But if you were to, like, break meatloaf in half, it gets, like, real lumpy and gross looking? Yeah. They got broken in half kind of meatloaf. They, uh, their faces are very unappetizing. Yeah, yeah, and yet Picard and the rest of the gang are shoveling food into their faces. During this dinner, Beverly's like, you know, Jean-Luc, this would be something that you specifically would be really into. As if Picard wasn't just a POW like a year ago and was responsible for the murder of potentially hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah. Like... What kind of awful idea is that? <laughs> That's yeah. the worst idea I've ever heard on this show. <laughs> like, like, let's go back into your memories, Picard. Let's dig some shit up. He might be the least suited for this sort of practice. Yeah. And it's hard to tell whether the doctor is kind of baiting him. Like, her tone is a little bit inscrutable, but it's, it, it is absolutely a strange thing for her to be suggesting. <laughs> Yeah. Um, During this conversation, uh, Tarman's like, yeah, well, I've been doing this for decades. So is my wife. But Jev, God, he's just an idiot. Like, <laughs> we take him places and he doesn't know what he's doing. Like, he's a total embarrassment to everyone involved. And, and also, he, we hate he him. Tries, he tries to probe people and he doesn't even know what hole to put it into. Yeah. Yeah. That Jev. Once Jev spent two days with a contingent of elderly gentons. He couldn't get anything from them. I spent only one hour with them and retrieved a fragment from the Gentonian trade wars. It's unprofessionally cruel. It's a, do you ever watch The Deadliest Catch, Adam? Sure, that's the, that's the show where they go catch all the crabs, right? Yeah. There's, a, there's a, a lot of dynamics like that where there'll be like an old salty crab captain 
and then his son is like out on deck and sucks at fishing for crab. Right. And the guy will be like on the loudspeaker to the entire boat going like, my son can't throw a grappling hook worth of shit. <laughs> that was sort of the vibe I was getting off Tarman in this scene. The captain's like smoking two cigarettes at the same time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Getting on and, the intercom. Yeah. And then he like hits the button to alert the entire crew that a 50 foot wave is coming over the bow. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so Tarman's smoking cigarettes and making fun of Jev. <laughs> Jev does that thing where he just leaves a formal dinner out of embarrassment. Yeah. And you know it's bad when you just get up in the middle of dinner and leave. That's a move that I am prone to when I'm really upset. Not something I'm super proud of in myself, but yeah. uh, I do. I did really identify with just punching out of a stressful situation like that. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, and Troy keys on this right away, and it's like, well, I guess I don't need to eat anymore either. I need to, I need to help propel this episode forward. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna yeah. walk out with Jeb. Yeah, and so she hits the hallway with him, and they get on the elevator, and she's like, "Listen, like I know all about having a fucking obnoxious parent. They've made entire shows about my relationship to my parent." Yeah. And all of its viewers hate it. <laughs> there have been so many times when important fancy dinners in that room have gone really badly because of my mom. So I know where you're at right now, buddy. And this is like, there are a lot of parts of this episode where, uh, where someone being nice is mistaken as an invitation for some shit to go down. And Troy yeah. is just being nice. And Jeb sees this as a reason to make her a target. Right. Like, in a super she, creepy way. She's not just being nice. She's kind of serving her professional role in yeah. like helping him calm down. Right. And yeah, and Jeb acts like it's the end of the first date it's he 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 completely he's like totally that creepy guy that thinks he's on a date when the girl doesn't yeah yeah so she uh she heads back to her quarters and uh she switches like, into her uh, sleeping ball gown <laughs> right yeah yeah she's in like a floor length taffeta <laughs> taffeta nighty that's uh off of one of her shoulders it leaves everything to the imagination though doesn't it <laughs> oh yeah yeah you can't it's not it's not revealing of figure at all adam no she starts getting hit with telepathic bangers and uh she's like trying to calm herself down so she goes and gets a hot chocolate hot chocolate uh but this series of bangers devolves into her having like a full-blown waking nightmare of commander Riker forcing himself on her after a poker game and in the midst of the chaos of this vision Riker is replaced by the image of Jeff have you stopped thinking about us just so, it is pretty clear that Jev has invaded Troy's mind and is doing 
the telepathic equivalent of rape on her. Let's. I'm going to assume that this scene was effective for you, uh, just by saying this. But let's talk a little bit about why it is. Um, it is terrifying to see someone we like do this to someone else we like. Yeah. You know. Yeah. It, you know, t- completely separate from the act itself, which is also terrifying. But well, this is like the opposite of a mistake this show makes a lot. Is yeah. they often will make the the like the human collateral in a crisis something we have no connection to. Yeah, and we are utterly connected to this. Yeah, it's so so upsetting. And I mean especially because of Riker and Troy's prior relationship, you know, I think that it I I I can't imagine it doesn't feel like a really plausible scenario to any viewer uh, who knows anything about date rape, you know? Right. And it's, and it is like, and that's like the thing that is so upsetting about date rape to society is that it is really hard to face the fact that men will force themselves on women that they're like nominally the lovers of, you know? Right. Right. There are a couple of things that they do during the scene that, uh, amplifies how troubling it is and one of the main ones is their use of cutaways like mm-hmm. they are they are isoing on all of the grabby hands on eyes and and using quick cuts you're getting far closer as a viewer to Deanna Troy than you ever have up until now also so like not only is it awful from an from an act standpoint, but like as a viewer, you're being brought in just as close, just as intimately into that situation. Like, I've yeah. never I've never seen Deanna Troy's neck like in full screen before, but that's what we get. Like, we're right we're right in there in a way that is profoundly intimate and scary. Yeah, and the hands grabbing like are shot so close up that it's a little hard to see what yeah. specifically they're grabbing, which is pretty shrewd television because yeah. it makes it, you know, as upsetting as your mind is willing to make it, you know. I think there's another reason why we're discussing this scene so long, and that is because its runtime is long. Like Yeah. This is an extended assault scene on a show that I would say most fights in general, quote unquote fights, last two punches and then it's yeah. over. But this is like this goes on and on. Yeah. It's it's several minutes long and in reading the capsule for this episode in the last episode, I was thinking that this was going to be much more of a after school special tone and this yeah. is a pretty this is pretty heavy stuff like it, it's and it's not like you know i i think i think that there's a lot of like valid discussion about how problem how problematic it is to depict rape of any kind in media uh as a you know and there's you know i'm like not an expert on that so i don't think that and i don't think this is like the place to go into it on our right. hilarious comedy show but uh for what it's worth i think this episode deals with the issues in a way that is much more sophisticated than i remembered 
Star Trek being able to deal with things like this. I, I completely agree. Yeah. I had expected, I mean, based on my memory of the episode, a more Night Terror's treatment of of these events. And right. what we got was a far less campy, far more straight-ahead uh, depiction of this stuff in a way that um, it might have just been, like, in my youth, I, I just wasn't, I wasn't able to grasp what this was in the way that I am now. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, and maybe, like, the this is a little ahead of its time even. Like, maybe the kind of conversation about this stuff in pop culture has caught up to where this episode is. Yeah. To some extent. I don't know. Well, Troy wakes up in a coma, and the... Do you want to take that one again? <laughs> Because that uh, doesn't make sense. I was trying to have a joke in our show, Adam. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, that was a that was that was the opposite of a yes and, wasn't it? <laughs> that was a. Uh, you, there seems to be some mistake. <laughs> <laughs> They've got Troy in Six Bay, and she is passed out, and they don't know they don't know anything about what happened to her. You know, they are just assuming she's in some kind of a coma. So uh, Riker winds up with the task of running the investigation, which I thought was surprising. Like this is kind of Worf's job, but Riker is the one running around the ship, kind of looking into this situation and um uh, the first person he talks to is jev and that that's a really interesting point in that like as the xo Riker has sort of the diplomatic uh responsibilities but where there's something criminal happening you would think Worf would be the guy in charge which i think really speaks to what the crew is perceiving how the crew is perceiving what has happened like right. they don't they don't see it as a as a crime at this point. Right. Well, and I guess also they are attempting to rule out the involvement of the Yulians, but they don't want to offend them in in that that process. So it's like it's a little bit of like, hey, listen, um this is kind of awkward to bring up, but ever since you've been on the ship uh, yeah, you know, ever since dinner last night, like you were the person that left with Troy and now she is not conscious. So that's kind of uncomfortable for us. And I could, I could understand that being the motivation if this were a different alien that we cared a little bit more about, but there, it doesn't feel like there are any stakes there for these people because this is an uber mission and they're just right. taking these mind historians and historians to and fro like those stakes don't seem real to me and at the time it made me want to quarantine them mm -hmm. immediately yeah yeah like put them in a shuttlecraft and and tow them with the tractor beam get them out of here right right so yeah like Riker tries to kind of 
connect with this guy and and Jeff is pretty is pretty dismissive of the premise. I'm not implying that you did anything intentional. I'm just trying to get to the bottom of the mystery. We have nothing to hide. If you wish to spend time examining us. Fine. Thank you. And there is another like totally insane villain push in on Jev as Riker leaves. And uh and then uh we have a pretty touching scene with Riker back in Six Bay just kind of talking to the unconscious Troy. Yeah, he uh he refers back to the clip show as a time where uh Troy talked to him when he was in a coma and then mm-hmm. you know, that that really seemed to help him, so he thought he'd give it a try with her. Yeah. It's uh and I they, think it's a really necessary scene given how troubling it was to see him in the attack scene. Like this this kind of reminds us like what a good egg Riker is, you know. Well, I think this scene is is totally necessary for the reason you said, but also because this is something I wanted to circle around on when we finished the capsule, but how sure are we about which events did occur and which events were Jev's manipulation during any of the nightmares that drive the senior staff into, into comas? Are you saying that he's actually physically doing something to them? Edit this out if I'm completely wrong, but, like, are we to assume that Riker's uh, date rape of Troy didn't happen? I think it's all mental. I mean, that's what my understanding was. My understanding was that it always started from a memory, from a real memory, that then was was illuminated by the Yulians. And so and so there would have to be some truth to the memory at the core for a Yulian to manipulate. And so at this point in the episode, is there any reason for a viewer to think that Riker didn't assault Troy and that Jev's intention was just to take the place of the antagonist during one of the most uh, emotionally fraught memories of a person's life. That like, is... like, I guess there are two different types of nightmares that, that this could be that is unclear huh. at this point. It's if Jev is placing the nightmare in in someone's memory and, and it's a construction of his own design that he's done, or if he's merely becoming the nightmare that the person already has. I 100% thought that Jev was inserting this into Troy's mind rather than remixing uh, an actual memory, but... Right, but but the reason for that is because you... Because the reason for that has to be because you know Riker would never do that, right? Is that the only reason a viewer has to think that it isn't a true memory? Because there's nothing plot-wise, there's nothing in the dialogue that says that... uh, that it isn't. I don't know. And the is my interpretation the, just like reading way too much into it? No, I mean I think it's a really interesting question that I don't know that is actually answered in the. I mean, 
I never, I never considered it. So I'm, I'm kind of reeling thinking about it, but it's, it just always felt like the Yulians needed something from the subject to, to craft the thing off of. And if, I guess, which is, yeah, I don't know. I, I have an incomplete thought about that, but. Yeah. I mean, I, here's, here's what I'll say, like, and, uh, this is kind of like doing for a character what society often does for, uh, an individual in these circumstances is like, we know Raker is a good guy and I don't think that the show would, would make him a bad person in that way. Right. Like, I think that if we walk around for the rest of our lives thinking that Troy has a real memory of Riker forcing himself on her, like that, uh, well, first of all, that completely undermines the main thing we know about Riker's sexuality is that he is the number one consent aficionado in the universe. Yeah. I mean, that that just, that really went to a dark place. Yeah. My love is a Speaking of going to dark places, Riker leaves Six Bay and starts having a waking nightmare of his own, and it's uh, sort of like the cover of Rubber Soul, the Beatles record. He's in uh, he's in engineering, and there's some kind of coolant leak type situation. And they're bringing down the garage door and. There's an ensign there that's telling Riker that bringing bringing the garage door down is gonna doom one of his compatriots to death. But he's got to do it. So it's like it's a it's a dream about you know issuing a command that led to saving the ship but costing somebody their life. The most troubling part of the scene to me was that the ensign looked so much like Ted Cruz. <laughs> That is, uh, that's true. I I think the most troubling part to me was that they didn't cut to Steve Zahn, you know, waist deep in water, trying to trying to shut off a valve as the <laughs> as as water flowed into the compartment. Welcome back to Crimson Tidecast. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the moment this is over, Riker too wakes up in a coma. <laughs> Everyone's just waking up in comas, Ben. Yeah, no good. He, he he goes into his coma in about the most uncomfortable way possible physically. He is, only his head is on his desk. The mm-hmm. rest of his body is seated in a chair and hanging, dangling, if you will, below the desk. Yeah. It seems impossible as a position to hold if you're unconscious. Yeah, it's sort of like that time that Wesley fell asleep with his nanites in the uh yeah, in the open configuration. Yeah. Yeah, it does not look comfy. No. I am the cutest of all. You will assist us. I am the cutest of all. You are all. You know what you don't get in any of these scenes when the senior staff uh wakes up unconscious is uh <laughs> Is the gurney scene. 
Oh yeah, like rushing them to the, uh, yeah. rushing them through the double doors to the ER. You don't get that. I would have liked a gurney scene. Mm. That always really heightens the tension. Yeah, and you know Picard knows from gurney scenes. If you would have fought one whit below your abilities, I'd have given you a good scar to remind you. You get a. Uh... You get Barkley that, that's a, working that's on That's a Dune the... reference, Adam. A yeah. Dune reference. See, I was just going to walk right by it, unregarded. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, they, they, uh, they've they got, like, um, a couple of investigations in working in parallel now. Data and Jordy are going to work on uh, seeing if there's, like, something in the past that could uh, could point the finger at these Yulians. And Dr. Crusher is trying to figure out if something is happening to the brains of people that the Yulians do investigations into. So she, like, brings Keiko O'Brien into Six Bay and uh, gives her a brain scan. And uh, Keiko is... Clear. O'Brien's like, you're never going to find anything in there. <laughs> yeah. Keiko seemed a little gun shy in this scene, right? Like, yeah. Like, Doctor Crusher's like, uh, "Yeah, your readings come back normal," and Keiko's like, uh, "Is that okay? Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? What's going on?" Yeah, yeah, and like Keiko's fine. Yeah, she has a uh, she has nothing but good things to say about the uh, the hypnotist that they all went to. Yeah. Yeah, if anything, she's like still super pumped about her dumb story with the with the brush glass. Yeah. I one time like in college, I think like freshman orientation, they they had some hypnotist show that we all went to. And walking back to my dormitory, I was chatting with a kid that lived on my floor who had gone on stage and gotten hypnotized. And uh I was like asking about it and I saw him like a couple days later in the dining hall and I was like talking to him about it again and he said yeah it totally messed up my sleep like i couldn't like i couldn't fall asleep that night it was like i had jet lag weird yeah i wonder so i i just wonder whether keiko is in her right mind you know because sometimes you say dumb stuff when you have jet lag i wonder how keiko's sleeping the night after that well i mean it's probably fine because i imagine o'brien is out on the couch right yeah totally yeah she can spread out for sure so now it is the doctor's term to have an upsetting waking memory. And this one for sure is a real memory, right? That's just that's just my argument is that if if the second and the third memory are based on real events, why shouldn't we believe that the first one is as well? Well, is the second Like is that a scene that We've actually seen Riker go through? I mean, we haven't seen him go through it, but it seems totally viable as something that would have happened at some point. Yeah, I wonder. I mean, it does seem viable, but I also feel like we would have seen it, and it would have been more conclusive if it was, like, an actual thing that we remembered. When you have nightmares, do you mostly have nightmares about things that have happened or about imagined things that have not? I would say that typically it's imagined things. Yeah? Yeah. But that's a great point, right? Like, some nightmares are about things that 
happen to you and others are not. So See, one line of dialogue could have cleared up all of this if in the beginning at that dinner table scene when they're talking about the training, about how the Yulians do this, if... If uh, if Tarman or Jev was like, yeah, you know, like it all starts with a specific memory that someone has. Like we can't work with anything that isn't already there. So it all starts with something that the subject gives us. Like if if we. But he's had- inserting himself into the memory. So if it's, I mean, if he can insert himself, who says he can't insert a memory? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. I mean, I'm just trying to talk you out of. Riker being a rapist here, but... Believe me, I want to be talked out of that. (laughs) Uh, I think we all do, Adam. I think we all do. So, uh, the doctor's memory is of going and seeing the deceased body of Jack Crusher, who, uh, you know, I think we all know by now that Picard ordered crusher to do something that ended in him buying the farm and that is why the relationship between the captain and the doctor is so weird um but uh it's good of you to come it's the least i can do but Jordy and data are like heading heading down to six bay to talk to the doctor and they find her in a very similar position to Riker. Sleeping, sleeping on her desk. Data calls for an emergency medical team to Dr. Crusher's office, which made me think, like, <laughs> how far away is that medical team from Six Bay? Yeah. Like, why wouldn't it be right outside in the hall? Yeah, he should have just stuck his head out the door. Yeah, that to me felt like an incongruity that <laughs> they didn't quite understand. This yeah. scene, her, uh, her memory... Her her nightmare was, I mean, no less shocking than anyone else's. I mean, you get to see Picard with hair. <laughs> He's also but, wearing some sort of uh, thing on his face. Uh, yeah. What was that about? Was that was that uh, to illustrate his own injuries uh, that were related to Jack Crusher's that I, ended up killing him? That occurred to me. I was also thinking maybe it's like some sort of cross-pollination with memories of after she treated him for the Borgs. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that as well. So, Ben, before we move on, like, what we have here are three awful nightmares, awful waking nightmares, where Jev has inserted himself in each one. And the first one, he is someone who is sexually assaulting Deanna Troy. In the second one, he is the ensign who is angry at Riker for killing a co-worker in the line of duty. And in the third one, he has taken the place of Picard in escorting Beverly to uh, view the body of her deceased husband. My question for you is, what is he getting out of that? What, like... Jev could be doing it because he has the power to do it, but, like, why? You mean, like, why is is his image in there also? No, like, what satisfaction is he getting from the violence he's perpetrating on these people in their memories? Like, what we don't get is the cutback to him. Is he in in his quarters, like, uh, totally jacked up 
on on what this is getting him like it's not like I want to empathize with him in any way but I sort of I need a little bit more into his reasoning like is it just totally is it is it the the mind of a sociopath that that you just can't explain and so it needs no explanation as to as to why he would do it but I don't know it felt a little bit empty that this that this is happening and he's the cause but we don't really I don't really understand why. Do you? And does that I, matter? I guess, like, I mean, I don't think this completely clears that up, but I do get the feeling that he's sort of a guy who feels like he's entitled to more than he gets, and he's got this shitty father who who publicly, you know, berates him. Yeah, it's an act out, right? It's And... and I mean, that's obviously not, like, an excuse or anything, but I do feel like I kind of see that as being maybe the recourse of a certain kind of person is to inflict their bad feelings on other people. And I also, like, I mean, who knows when you've got this kind of power, like, what the temptation is like, right? Yeah. I mean, if you are sitting next to the laptop of a loved one and they've left their Facebook open... It's it's like hard for some people to resist the temptation of looking through it, right? And if everybody's mind is their, you know, is their password entered Facebook to you, <laughs> that's yeah. got to be. I mean, if and like if that is the case, and you're also an asshole. Yeah, I almost wonder if this was something that they, if this was a more intentional decision than we think, because if you. If you see any pleasure derived from this form of violence, I think this becomes less quote-unquote mind rape and more like actual rape in terms of in terms of its depiction. Like, yeah, I think the uh, the the analogy turns real in a way that is probably not something they were willing to do on the show. Yeah, and I think you have to assume that his attacks on. Riker and the doctor are about covering his tracks. So, I don't know. I mean, (laughs) I'm not into his tactics, but I guess I can kind of see what's motivating them. Yeah. So at this point, Troy is up. Uh, she's recovered after three days in her coma. She woke up from waking up in a coma. <laughs> they're still like trying to put everything together because she has no memory of what happened to her. Like she doesn't even, she doesn't even remember. She doesn't even remember the assault. So they're like, "Hey, well, we've got these guys that look into people's memories. Why don't we have one of them look into it?" and <laughs> I guess that like Picard has like a conversation with the three Yulians in his in his office where they like convince him that this is the right way to go. And uh and Jev kind of tosses himself out as like the one who's gonna do it, which is pretty pretty much the the worst possible scenario, you know. It's so fucked up to put the suspects in charge of of 
of investigating the crime, right? Yeah. It makes I mean, no sense. And they don't even realize, like, what the crime is at this point. But they get they get started on, on this. And meanwhile, Jordy and Data are, like, trying to trying to look into the idea that this may have happened before. So they're looking at the the kind of travel patterns of the Yulians and whether people went into weird comas other times when these guys were around. So we have another very, very upsetting scene with Troy, like, reliving this memory. And, like, this is some of the... Some of the most visceral and upsetting performance Marina Sirtis has done on the show, I think. Yeah. Like she really connects to these very scary feelings and what really serves her well here is starting out uh, positively. Like, yeah, because the memory begins as a happy one and it totally twists into something awful. Yeah. And thinking about that makes me, Think, thinking about that fact makes me think that this is a fabricated memory, Adam, because yeah. I don't think that she looks back at this memory fondly at the beginning part of it if she if knows she what's coming. If she knew it was a true assault. Yeah, yeah, you know what? You're right. Oh, God, I'm so relieved. <laughs> <laughs> Woo. There was some genuine suspense in this episode, Adam. Yeah. So, Riker's good name is cleared by... The way Troy thinks about a thing with him. <laughs> uh, and uh, and then the... the Seriously, memory. that moment in our podcast might be more a more satisfying conclusion than the one we get on the actual show. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because we do have to kind of like relive the trauma of a very traumatic scene. And it's Jev kind of bringing her back through the the worst parts of of this memory, and in the place of Riker instead of Jev this time it is Tarman, and uh, and so that implicates Tarman in the in the crime. And I think the next scene is like Jev and and Picard in the ready room and. Jeff is like, oh man, the old the old man really lost touch. He like, he's totally out of control. He's a really bad dude. And uh, good thing I was here to put him behind bars. Right. Yeah. And uh, meanwhile, Data and Jordy are still doing their cross reference. And by the time they've started to like put it all together, they realize that there's some. There's some coma victims on some of the planets the Yulians have visited that couldn't possibly have been Tarman's victims because they went into comas when Tarman was back on the Yulian homeworld. So smash cut to Jev going down to say his goodbyes to Troy in her room, and he is about to force himself on her in her presence. It's happening again. So fragile. It was you. It was always you. This seems pretty intense because she starts to fight back, but he like physically overpowers her, and uh, and it's like 
just in the the nick of time that Worf and a Dustbuster club come through the door and like Worf kind of finishes the the job that Troy started by like a <laughs> open fist smack across his loaf. <laughs> Yeah, he he one punch KOs him. Yeah, this was a fairly complex fight scene for Marina Sirtis too. Yeah, she really wails on the guy. Like it's, she's definitely like, like you know, like there's there's plenty of times when you see actors do stage combat where you can where you can tell that they're holding back mm-hmm. and. This is and and like when Worf comes in, it's clearly like a a camera trick where Worf is throwing his fist past Jev, but mm-hmm. because he's a little bit back from where Jev is, like you don't see that he wouldn't have really connected. I think Marina Sirtis is really like not holding back and actually throwing punches at this guy. Yeah, she looks like she's really wailing on him, and and it feels satisfying. To see that, you yeah. know, not that the circumstance uh, is is fun at any point, but you like to see her get one over on him. Right. Like, you like to see him start to get what he deserves. And it's also really amazing because in her mind, she's being overpowered by him. And he's, like, taking her communicator off her uniform and is starting to, like, grab her wrist. And she, like, wrenches her hand out of his and starts to kind of fight back a little bit. And, you know, it's not like a fight that she has any hope of winning, but I mean, like to the extent that there can be a catharsis for a situation like this, it is like sort of cathartic to see this guy get mollywopped by, by Worf. Yeah. It ends sort of abruptly, right? Yeah. Like, uh, the Enterprise changes course and uh, takes the Yulians back home from whence they came. Tarman apologizes for Jev's awful fuck-up. And then off-screen, Riker and Crusher wake from their coma? Yeah. You know what's interesting about Riker and Crusher is that, like, we never get the sickbay scene of all three of them in the bio-beds. We only ever Mm -hmm. see Troy with the blanket on her. Yeah, and so you never see like the visual stakes of this, right. like in in compound. Yeah, the last scene is just is just a really somber McLaughlin group. Issue one. Yeah, I thought it was worth noting that the show goes ahead and calls this rape. Yeah, I, I mean, like I think that there is probably a temptation when you're making a show like this to make everything be kind of metaphorical because like you know science yeah. fiction is yeah inevitably a metaphor for the present rather than an imagination of the future science fiction is always about us now and us thinking about you know who we are and where we're headed and and that kind of thing so the temptation to like let everybody do the math at home about you know whether this is rape or not was probably there not just from like a we're making a sci-fi show standpoint but from a like uh this is like 
a show that airs at 6 p.m. <laughs> right. Standpoint. Yeah. Like, this is a pretty heavy-duty topic, and, like, I don't think network television wades into these waters with this much delicacy very often. Yeah. Like, this, I think this is, like, a, like a real... A real exploration of a real issue that affects a lot of people and one that is drenched in stigma and taboo. Yeah, and uh, Marina Sirtis, like, she was given something big to do, storytelling-wise, emotionally, and she did great. She did so good. Yeah. It, it, uh, It really, like... It really underlines how underutilized she is as a performer in this show yeah. up to this point. Yeah. Like, I mean, she's had a couple episodes this season now where it's just crazy how good she is. And yeah. it just makes me feel so bad for all of the seasons where she... She's kind of gone wasted. Yeah. Did you like the episode, Ben? I mean, to the degree that a story like this could be liked... There are ways to like this episode. I think we could agree. Yes, I think it is. It is like as an artistic achievement and as an exploration of a tough subject, uh, largely successful. I mean, like I, I think that you also have to remember that it's from like 1991 or whatever. So, yeah. you know, like I don't think it's as woke as the most woke ever exploration of, of an issue like this. But um, uh, I think, I think it's, it's pretty solid. And uh, the things that it sets out to achieve, uh, I think it does achieve, you know. Do you think Riker's the wokest of all the senior staff? <laughs> <laughs> like if we were going to do who's the most woke, it's probably mm. him, right? Adam, I don't feel qualified to call balls and strikes when it comes to wokeness. Yeah. Maybe that's something we can keep an eye on going forward. I think that's worth doing. I'm with you, Ben. I mean, I quote-unquote like the episode because of its power, its relative power, especially. Um, Yeah, it was... Strong stuff. Like it was, uh, it was hundred proof Star Trek for sure. For sure, I'll be really interested to see the conversations that happen around this on the Greatest Gen online communities because I think that um, we've already had plenty of like really insightful conversations, and I uh, especially am curious to read what the women in our audience take away from this because I think that it's kind of impossible as a like heterosexual dude to understand how scary something like this really is for women yeah absolutely um so i will here's what i'll say if you are going to wade into those conversations please be cognizant of the touchiness of this subject and like try to be as respectful and uh conscientious as you possibly can as both of those things as i think our viewers have have been most of the time i would yeah absolutely that. yeah well adam uh 
all of that business taken care of. Yeah, who's going to be our lucky Jumbotron person to follow this? (laughs) I think it is time to see if we have any Priority One messages. (laughs) Priority One message from Starfleet coming in on secured channel. Need a supplemental income. Supplemental income? Supplemental. Supplemental. Yeah, it's extra. But the interest alone could be enough to buy this ship. Hey, Ben, we've got two personal Priority One messages today. That's my favorite size of Priority One message. Yeah, it's like four slices. You can totally take it down all by yourself. Yeah, you could easily hold it in your lap at a ballpark or a movie theater. Message is from Kathleen, and it is for Zonker Bonker. <laughs> it's got to be a cat, right? All right, let's, let's see if we can figure this out from the content of the message. It goes like this. Since the election, I've been donating to causes that make the world less bleak. The greatest generation is the rare thing that, that's made me laugh when I just want to cry. So thank you. Also, Zonker Bonker, if you're listening, thanks for introducing me to this podcast. <laughs> I miss you, and my door is always open. Aww. Man. So if Zonker Bonker is a cat, it's a hyper-intelligent cat that is capable of listening and understanding and even recommending podcasts. We've gotten a couple P1 messages that are about, like, gratitude for introducing them to the pod. That's pretty great. Gratitude is a beautiful emotion. I try to do some, like, gratitude mindfulness from time to time. I'm into it. Kathleen mentioned something that uh, I think I don't think we've mentioned too often on the show, which is uh, we've heard from quite a few viewers about how how great the pod is to listen to in a time of of profound existential distress. So yeah, um, I don't think we are we are blind to what's happening, and I think for the same reasons that the show is being enjoyed, uh, it is. This is much of a joy and distraction for us to make. So uh, I really appreciate hearing that. Yeah, I always uh, always love those messages. Uh, We also have a message from Chris, and it is to Cat. Chris definitely sounds like might be a cat. Cat definitely doesn't. (laughs) No. Come on. Two on the nose. Uh, the message goes like this. Sorry for throwing a cool hundo at these nerds instead of our upcoming nuptials, but I'm doing <laughs> it for us. <laughs> they need to keep the show going and be convinced to continue with DS9 so we can see if they find Garrick and Bashir to be as gay for each other as we know them to be. Mm. Thanks for being the best dad to our cats. I can't wait to be married to you. <laughs> Wait a second. How can a... There are cats explicitly mentioned in this, and cat is the dad to the cats. It's it's Chris's and cats all the way down. Yeah, man. I feel like we kind of paved the way for confusing ourselves on this one, Adam. I really love that Chris went rogue on on wedding expenditures on this. Ben, did you ever go rogue? Uh, on a wedding expenditure, I'm trying to think of how I did. I know I did, well, but it's it's hard. Like you got you have a budget, and you have a list of things, but sometimes you just want to do something for you, and that's what Chris did here. Yeah, I definitely did that when I went and got my uh, my tuxedo stuff yeah. set up. Like I, I went, I, I splashed out a little bit on my 
on my raiments. Hmm. Um, but that said, I don't know that like clothes for groom was ever really a line item in our budget. So yeah. it was really just like me spending money on myself that I didn't really have to spend. <laughs> How upset would your bride to be have been if you had had explicitly taken money from the wedding fund to spend on a P1 for a stupid Star Trek podcast? Pretty pissed, I imagine. My wife is a lawyer. She's a, <laughs> she's a very vicious person when she when she needs to be. I just, I, I just try to stay on her good side, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's not a mistake you would ever, ever make. I like to dance around on on the edge of her good side that is toward the eye rolling side. Yeah, that's that's fairly harmless. That eye that's rolling where, side. That's where I live. That's that's my neighborhood. I love that the answer to a question, "How would your wife feel?" begins with, "My wife is a lawyer." <laughs> that's the greatest answer. Yeah, well, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to give the people context for what, what kind of rhetorical training she has for, for example, an argument about budget. <laughs> well, uh, congratulations on your upcoming nuptials, Kat and Chris. Hopefully, this was not a reason to, uh, to stray off course for those. Yeah, and. Um, you know, if we get to if we get to Bashir and Garrick, we'll see if we'll see if our gaydar goes off in the same way. Um, maybe it will, maybe it won't. We'll have to see. No promises. No promises. Uh, one thing we can promise is to keep doing priority one messages as long as they keep coming in. <laughs> You can make sure that happens by going to MaximumFun.org slash Jumbotron, where personal messages and wedding announcements are $100. Uh, commercial messages are 200 and they help us produce the show. Thanks a lot, guys. One of the amazing things about making The Greatest Generation is getting to see all of the cool, creative stuff that the Friends of DeSoto make when we do a Code 47 episode. People send in handcrafted stuff all the time, and they send in their books, they send in paintings, they send in uh, crochet work. It's so cool. And uh, I want a few more of you to have websites to direct us to in those letters. I want you to put your beautiful work on display for the world so that when we get to look at it, we can tell people where to go to get a look at it themselves. And you don't have to know anything about building a website to build a website these days because you can use Squarespace. It'll look beautiful no matter what kind of device people are looking at it on. Hell, you can even sell stuff using a Squarespace website. Don't make your cool, creative project captain's eyes only. Head to squarespace.com slash scarves for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code SCARVES to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Boy, do I love a microdose gummy from Lumi Labs. I'm, uh, I'm running low, so I'm going to head over to microdose.com pretty soon and put in another order. Microdosing is a technique I use to steer my mentals in a preferred direction several times a week. And uh, I just love it because you can really predict what is going to happen and to what degree it is going to happen. Because these are very low dose cannabis gummies that uh, give you an entry level dose that help you feel just the right amount of good. 
And they've been super loyal as sponsors to Greatest Trek and Greatest Gen, so I hope you will give them a try. Get 30% off your first order, plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code SCARVES. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code is SCARVES for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code SCARVES. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! Most of the plants humans eat are technically grass. Most of the asphalt we drive on is almost a liquid. The formula of WD-40 is San Diego's greatest secret. Zippers were invented by a Swedish immigrant love story. On the podcast Secretly Incredibly Fascinating, we explore this type of amazing stuff. Stuff about ordinary topics like cabbage and batteries and socks. Topics you'd never expect to be the title of the podcast. Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. Find us by searching for the word secretly in your podcast app. And at MaximumFun.org. Hey, Ben. Hey, Adam. Did you find yourself a very special drunk Shimoda? Incredible. Drunk Shimoda! I did. Um, There is a great Riker moment in that first scene where Tarman says his little line about not being able to resist with a beautiful woman that uh, you you just see disgust in in Riker's disposition every moment after that after that line is uttered in that scene like his like his whole demeanor changes and I just thought that that was great like I kind of like I thought that like we made up that joke like we made I thought we made up the idea that Riker is more obsessed with consent than anything else about sex. Yeah. But now I feel like maybe Frakes made that up and and made that part of his performance from the beginning. Yeah. You you read consent fetishist off of him in a nonverbal way, which is really fun. It's great. Yeah. Uh how about yourself? Did you have a Shimoda? Well, Ben, I think I think our experience in production uh, will help you understand what I mean when I'm talking about clearing a background <laughs> and like wherever you are, if whether you're shooting an interview or you're shooting like in a big wide open space, you want to be conscious of that background, don't you, Ben? Sure. Because you're not just looking at the person talking, you're looking at the person behind. And in the scene that I'm talking about specifically is that is that station where Jordy and Data are... Uh, they're doing the investigation. They're looking into the records to see uh, all the places where the Yulians have visited and how that sort of matches up with people falling into a coma. 
We're talking about the big uh, set of computers at the back of the bridge. Yeah, and so we're doing some shot reverse shot with Jordy and Data, but on Jordy's reverse shot, he's talking into a butt basically the whole time. <laughs> like just a big old in profile butt. But what? Everyone I know has a big butt. And it is perfectly in focus because he's standing right next to him. Yeah. And uh, it's sort of hard to concentrate on anything else besides the idea that Jordy is speaking into a butt as if it were a microphone. And it's just right there. That guy's kind of thrusting his pelvis in right into the computers, too. Yeah, yeah. So you, you're aware of the scene I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah, you got to clear that. right now. Got to clear that background, guys. <laughs> what do we have coming up on the next episode, Ben? The next episode is Season 5, Episode 13, The Masterpiece Society. Picard's efforts to save a genetically engineered society from a natural disaster threaten to destroy it. Oh, I love it when there's grammar errors in these. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Do you remember this episode, Adam? You know, every time I say this, I get a ton of shit from people. Every time I say I don't remember an episode, invariably a couple people email in and they're like, in the very first episode of your podcast, you said you had a forensic memory for every episode of this show. So <laughs> we know that that's bullshit. So if, uh, so if you don't remember this, uh, uh, people will want to email drunkshimoda at gmail.com to yeah. tell us about how Adam lied in the first episode of our show. I have set up a Gmail filter uh, for the word <laughs> forensic. And so that just goes straight into the garbage. Does ben- that also coincide with the, our one that says... That filters for why didn't you say? Yeah, why and, didn't you say is a part of it, and also you forgot to mention. That's yeah. That's a third rule. God, we got so many why didn't use about Max Headroom. So many. I was shocked to know that the Venn diagram circles of Max Headroom fans and Greatest Generation viewers are two perfectly overlapping circles. <laughs> yeah. What the fuck? That I was not expecting that at all. 20,000 people emailed us about why we didn't say anything about the fucking Max Headroom thing. How about this? Because I didn't care. (laughs) I I knew about it. I just didn't care. Oh, my God. We heard so many times. Wow. A lot of Headroom fans. What do you call those fans? I don't know. I'm not really, like, I don't really think I even know what Max Headroom is, Adam. I know, but I don't care. I don't want to be run out of town on a rail or anything, but I just don't know. You know what? If that's the rail that I'm run out of town on, so be it. <laughs> Jeez. The, the militant Max Hedrum fan, fandom out there. God. Give it well, a rest. Unfortunately, Adam, we do not have vetoes left in our quiver, and thus this episode you remember nothing of it's gonna feel like watching a brand new one that's always fun yeah yeah that's nice uh it's like they're still making the show (laughs) yeah all right well uh that'll be next time thanks to everybody that goes to itunes and leaves us a nice review that's really kind and thoughtful of you uh thanks to the great folks at maximum fun for all the support they provide uh thank you to 
MaxFunStore.com for having three great merchandise items from our show. Got your West Hot American Summer t-shirt, your Drunk Shimoda t-shirt, and the all-new Drunk Shimoda Bar and Grill pint glass. I just added two of these to my cupboard, Adam. Yeah, I just got mine in the mail, too. Very well packed. No yeah, chance really of nice. breakage. Yeah, and uh, the uh, the shipping didn't go up when I added a second one to my order, so I thought that was pretty classy. You know how sometimes you get like a like sort of a garbagey pint glass from somewhere, and it's like the screen print is a little thin and flaky, and the glass isn't that cool. I was really happy to see that this seems like a pretty quality glass set up. Yeah, here. this is this is like this is you know ready for prime time like you could actually deploy this glass in a bar and grill and not be worried about them getting shattered all the time you know someone could retroactively open up a shimoda's bar and grill and buy nothing but these glasses they're ready for restaurant use they're ready to go they're not those uh they're not those cheapos that are gonna break on you yeah my uh yeah well (laughs) anyways the uh (laughs) you almost started a rant I almost started a rant about cheap glassware, Adam, but uh, I'm not going to do it. Save that for your other show. (laughs) Uh, Go to letsdrinkabout.it for my upcoming signature cheap glassware rant. Uh, (laughs) Glassrants.biz. You can chat with us about the show on Twitter using the hashtag greatestgen. Adam is at CutForTime. I'm at BenjaminRAHR. There's a great Facebook group and also a great subreddit uh, for the show. And, uh, of course, the Maximum Fun subreddit is there as well. So with that, we will be back at you next time with another great episode of Star Trek The Next Generation and a brand new episode of The Greatest Generation that you don't remember viewing the first time. So that was our first episode with almost zero jokes at all in it. Good job by us. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.